Kia ora. You're listening to Creative Capital from Te Taumata Tuia Ibe, Auckland's Regional Arts Trust, a podcast about advocacy and systems change. We're exploring the role that arts, creativity and culture play in Tamaki Makoto, with a focus on the people behind the work and their vision for the future. We hope these conversations are a simple way for us to come together as advocates and artists to navigate 2023 and beyond. On this episode, we speak to Julia Croft and Nathan Joe, both part of the Auckland Pride Fano. Julia Croft is the newly appointed Executive Director of Auckland Pride. She is a practicing performance artist whose extensive arts career has given her experience producing, working with funding bodies and an exceptional reputation for supporting the growth of young artists. Julia's performance works have toured Aotearoa as well as Australia, the UK, Singapore and Canada. She has worked extensively as a dramaturg, director and teaching artist across Aotearoa, Australia and the UK. Nathan Joe is the creative director of Auckland Pride. He is an award-winning playwright and performance poet. Last year, his play Scenes from a Yellow Peril had its world premiere as a part of ATC's 2022 program. Upcoming projects include his play Losing Face, which is premiering as a part of Q Theatre's 2023 Matchbox from August 9th to the 19th. And the latest instalment of Dirty Passports, a BIPOC spoken word lineup he curates, making its Christchurch premiere as a part of Word Christchurch on August 24th. Uh, my name is Alicia Wilson Hetty, and I am joined in the studio. Um, one actually here, and another guest digitally online. And I'm going to get them to introduce themselves. So I might get you to introduce yourself first, Julia, and then we'll pass it over to you, Nathan. Sure. Kia ora. Nice to be in the studio with you and nice to see your face on the screen, Nathan Joe. Uh, my name is Julia Croft. I'm an artist, a performer, and the new executive director of Pride. Woohoo! We. Oui. Um, I come from Ōtutahi originally, um, but I've been up here for 15 years or so. Um, mincing around various theatres and performance spaces and uh, really just absolutely delighted to have landed in this unexpected space. Yay. Yay. Nathan Joe, ladies and gentlemen. Kia ora. Nice to hear both of you as well and see like half of your faces. Um, <laughs> my name is Nathan Joe. I'm the creative director at Auckland Pride alongside Julia Croft. Um, I'm a playwright, performance poet, general sort of arts administrator and producer, as well as like a theatre maker. Um, super excited to be here and kind of fold in the three of our collective creative co-papas together, I think is really lovely, especially as people who've kind of um, sat in the same space in the industry or like peripherally of each other, often overlapping at many points in time, but now kind of coming together for this Auckland Pride connection and creative Papa, I guess, that brings us together. Thanks, Nathan. Also from Ototahi Christchurch. Uh, sorry. Also from Ototahi Christchurch um, and have been here about eight to ten years. Beautiful. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to be having this conversation with you both, actually. Firstly, congratulations, Julia, on ah. your recent appointment as the new Executive Director of Auckland Pride. Thank you. Now, both of you, first and foremost, are artists, and I think 
it is so incredibly exciting that we have two artists, not one, but two, two of you, leading a major mm-hmm. pride festival here in Aotearoa. And so um, I think I just wanted to start off the conversation by asking, how does your arts practice inform the roles that you're in? What does that look like for you both? Nathan Joe. Okay, I'll go first. It's just that, it's that funny thing of like, oh, I don't want to overlap too much. <laughs> now I'm like <laughs> overthinking it. So. Um, I, I guess for me, it's a strange one because I never thought I was going to be an arts administrator or a creative director as such. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I've entered it through a sort of um, understanding of my creative practice and an understanding of wanting to, and Julie and I, Julie and I talk about this, I think, often that we are in some ways trying to give lifelines to our younger selves or artists yeah. like our younger selves and create a sort of, um, yeah, tangible pathways that we felt maybe weren't there when we were coming through the industry. So I do think there's a lot of like um, retrospective or retroactive wish, for, wish fulfillment happening through what we do in the sort of arts administration space, but also... I think as queer people who maybe didn't have strong queer community growing up, mm-hmm. especially <clears throat> in the queer sector, despite it being a very queer, uh, sorry, especially in the creative sector, despite it being very queer, I didn't feel very connected to my pride as such, yeah. I think in my early 20s. There's that component as well. Yeah. So m- massively and hugely uh, informative, I think. Yeah. And kind of like a guiding Thank you, Nathan. And I guess for me, it's sort of similarly to Nathan, we're all reparenting our baby selves. Yeah. But I think um, I, uh, the way that I have, uh, the, the sort of fuel for my arts practice has for a long time been political. It's long It's long been informed by, I mean, me and you have talked about the um, rage as a driver for work and yeah. like feminist and queer rage as a space to start making work from and really informed by uh, political and social justice ideals. So for yeah. me, the continuation of moving from a building, sort of being in a world building space, it might be one theatre to a world building space of a festival, feels like somehow really satisfying progression. Um, and I think really practically, because up until like literally two months ago, I was a freelance artist, which I have been for a long time, I feel really connected to uh what that day-to-day is yeah and i feel like so i feel very inspired within this role to resource as many artists as possible with as much resource as i can as possible because i totally deeply feel what that hustle is and what that does to you and that part of that is to do with money but part of that is also to do with how important it is to have people in positions of sort of power or or in institutions to look at you and what you're making and go yeah it's cool I back you you're doing something important and I feel like that um is a really practical thing that I still feel really connected to even though I've gone to the dark side and taken a (laughs) nine-to-fiver and you know disclaimer listeners I am probably super biased because I'm a both of these awesome human beings are my friends and so I do use that lens when I'm looking at this but it is I I think this is the first time in a really really long time 
where someone has been appointed in one of these roles and I've gone, fuck yes, like, yay, this is so, so exciting. And like, what will this look like? How will we cultivate with this kind of leadership something really beautiful and meaningful and really centering artists at the core mm-hmm. of it because you're both artists. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a vocab that you pull from that I think usually in, in, in the, the space of festivals, there's not that lived experience or knowledge to pull from. And there there is a culture of like weird, deep mistrust of artists yep. that I fundamentally can't quite wrap my head around because I'm like, well, you're in this leadership position in theory, being in service of artists. A thousand percent. I really could not, uh, I've been thinking so much about that, the concept of leadership, it's sort of, again, in air quotes, leadership actually being a service role. Yeah. And I think um, I always used to say drunk around my kitchen table, like they need, as in, from an artist's point of view, they need us more than we need them. Yeah. And uh, I hope to be able to enact a bit of that, of going artists are the centre and artists are making the material and artists still yet fall to the bottom of the heap a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, so part of the, the role is to be of service and I have a lot of things I'd love to do in this role, but fundamentally it's to listen to what artists and community need and get behind and underneath that rather than take off uh, riding a horse into the sunset with my own agenda. Absolutely, and I think that's something about the Pride space, Pride festival space more generally, that I go, it, it is this like little glimmer where you can go, we can demonstrate something quite different because that's what queer people do anyway, is we demonstrate that the binary of anything and everything is actually, it's just all made up. So what does it mean as a community to reimagine other methodologies and modes of like moving through the world. And I think that's the beauty of a pride festival is it is really pushing up against those status quo and going, oh, we actually, it's all made up. We all know it's made up. We don't have to do it that way. We can do it like a completely different way. And so having the pair of you there, I'm just like, yes, I'm so (laughs) excited to see what that kind of continues to form into and what what it will look like in a year's time and in five years time and beyond that like how can we continue as artists who are being put into these roles reimagining something completely different because it's all made up like literally all of it yeah yeah I think being in a being queer and being in a queer space and being artists as arts administrators we're sort of constantly throwing this provocation whereas I think like a conventional arts administrator isn't a, con- a conventional arts administrator isn't going oh uh, how does my queerness fold into this practice how, how does my queerness inform my practice how can I kind of take the-, the premise and the gauntlet of being queer and actually use it as a verb and actually use it in my mm-hmm. practice and actually use it in administration like we're actually very lucky I think Julia and I and, and you at least right we're, we're-, we're kind of going oh I'm here and I'm being reminded constantly how to serve my community rather than I think hierarchically at a distance. And like Julia was saying, the kind of inversion of um, service is really interesting because I never look at it going, oh, why should you deserve to be part of pride? It's actually the reverse. It's why should pride deserve to have you as part of our kind of collective um, artistic cohort and force? Like actually what are we doing for you to deserve this? Yeah, totally. Thank you, Nathan. So, Picking up on that, 
could you describe to me both in your own way, whatever that might look like, what, what is queer arts practice? I think a lot of it's contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like Nathan, like to think of queerness as a verb. And for me, it is um, at its absolute root, for me personally, it is acknowledging that nothing is ever in stasis, mm-hmm. that things, there is, the like you say, the binaries are made up, but a lot of definitions and ways of being are constantly in some sort of fluid motion. And yeah. being queer for me in an arts practice or an arts organisation is sort of slipping between or luxuriating in those little gaps in between yeah binary definitions or inherited ways of making or being that we can crack and then we can crack it wider and we can crack it wider and soon it's cosmic. Love, 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 love. I think for me recently I've been thinking about that kind of age-old adage of the personal being political and being queer kind of makes that sometimes, I don't know, sometimes it's used a lot and it's off overused and loses meaning but I think being queer makes the personal political in a quite meaningful way again and it makes it feel urgent and it makes it feel really tangible and I think that's when I think about queer work that's what I think about how our bodies the things we have to say whether they're about queer things or not have a sort of in this current time in 2023 deeply political kind of resonance and reverberations and that's what I'm sort of searching for and I don't think only queer work is gay work and vice versa. I mean, it's such fluid sort of semantic stuff. But I think there's something around when I think queer, like Julia, I think, yeah, verb. I think political, I think embodied in many respects and against the status quo. Yeah, and I think actually quite a lot of your work, Lisa, and the work that FASWAG as a collective does, which really refuses to be held by conventional structures. It seems like it's constantly pushing against and like an octopus growing extra arms um, into different kind of facets of an arts practice but also not being satisfied with going it is dance, it is theatre, it is filmmaking but having a um, actually a playfulness around w- what form and what art can should be doing. I think there's yeah. um, uh, an ambition and a playfulness to a lot of queer art that results in, in my book, um, some of the more innovative arts that are produced, right? I totally agree. I think there's just a more expansive view of what the potential of things can be. And that's really exciting. And I think pushing those edges of going, where's the edge? Okay. How do we push it further? Where's the crack? How do you Mm -hmm. smash that open? Like, what does that look like is quite exciting. And I think that's, in my time where myself and Nathan have a shared fuckapapa is I'm Nathan's predecessor as the creative <laughs> director at Auckland Pride and Nathan, I swam out and Nathan swam in and I think that's something I've really considered in, in how we hold our community and how we open space for our artists to play in because, I don't know, once again, it's like if we're, if we're queering the space and we're queering art as we know it, what does that look like and how can we crack it down mm-hmm. is something I think I've been reflecting on a lot. And I've just really enjoyed, as your friend Nathan and as someone who was in your role, watching you kind of make that role your own and where you're taking things I think is super exciting. Like how are you... 
how have you settled? Because you've been in that role now for a year and that's a lifetime and five minutes really. Like, and I know I can see his face, it says it all, family, he's rolling his <laughs> eyes. What has that experience been like for you so far? I mean, the role goes by, like you said, so quickly. I mean, it, yeah, it's almost been a year because I started August last year, I believe. And uh, friggin' hell, um, the the lead up to the festival is pretty relentless. Mm-hmm. You don't really have a chance to find your feet in that kind of um, chaos until after the festival's over. And then you're, you know, exhausted. So it's been really lovely, actually. Um, Julia's handover period was a, with Max was a, um, the Julia's handover with Max, the previous executive director, um, was quite a luxurious time for me as well to get to know Julia, to kind of get to figure out what my role is again. Yeah, like we, awesome. It was a time of somewhat equilibrium was able yeah. to be achieved, I think. Whereas if it had sort of been bang, bang, you know, going from one executive director to another with no sort of proper handover, I think that would have been not overwhelming just for the handover itself, but also for me as the CD mm-hmm. sitting alongside the the new director. So I don't know. It's Pace-wise, it's kind of hard to even look back at what the lead-up was like in any um, objective way. But now that I've had time to kind of settle into it, actually being able to make those connections and um, touch base with a lot of the artists that I've built relationships with and having more time and space to think further and further ahead into the future, really. And yeah. dreaming is a big part of that. Last year, I didn't really have capacity to dream. And this year's this year so far, it's been much more, I don't know, I'm very optimistic and, and very excited about like the potential that Pride can offer the community, the arts community, and yeah. actually the, also, and Lilicia, we've talked about this, right? Like the potential for us to think beyond the kind of borders of Aotearoa and what the creative sort of, what Pride can look like across the world. Totally, because we are a part of a, a global queer community and family, and I mm. think this is what excites me so much about the huge untapped potential of of the Pride Festival in Tamaki Makoto, Aotearoa specifically, is I think it it's really a beautiful driver to demonstrate to other arts organisations and festivals what what's possible when you actually create and foster environments for people to dream in and not just our artists and our practitioners, but our leaders. Like when you give people space in these roles to dream, what does that look like? Because I think, unfortunately, and I know I'm preaching to a choir when I say this to you both, we do have a really deficit culture in our arts ecology in this country currently. And it can be really exhausting because you're constantly being instead of there being like solutions put on the table often there's barriers that are put on the table or there's a feeling of like well that's too hard and how you do that instead of just going well we're artists there's there will always be a way that we can work around that what does that look like and I think I don't know I'm just very excited I've said that three times already but I just feel really excited at the possibility of what is possible when it's just like, well, how can we 
how can we sit in a dream state with ourselves and with community mm-hmm. and how do you demonstrate that and how does that permeate outwards? Yeah, and I think, well, just because <clears throat> I've spent the whole morning writing funding applications, so I've been thinking quite a bit about how that kind of, uh, the qualitative value that comes from time and space and not productivity and not growth and not action, we, I think, as artists know really deeply and one of the things I'm really interested in, which is maybe less sexy and less utopian, but it's like how do you how do you communicate that to funders, and how yeah. do you like, given that they're within a sort of structure that demands certain things of them as well, that isn't you know they've they've also got CNZ's got MCH and MCH has got the minister. So how mm. how are we um, as arts administrators like finding language to? Uh, qualify that those experiences and how important they are and ask funders and institutions to sit with us for a while yeah that actually you know i've got so much love and respect for what sophie roberts did at silo and just went we're cancelled but actually if you think about a year is actually not that long to stop and rest and feed oneself and sit in development yeah so like i mean this is the longer game right but how, how we're encouraging as artists folks to sit with us for five years it might take five years it might take 10 things might actually shrink rather than grow but shifting that mindset away from deficit and productivity and a certain speed that to me as an artist felt like a treadmill that once you're on you can't get off you're like a little rat in a wheel absolutely and i want to get rid of capitalism oh so basically (laughs) (laughs) i went right there so we burn (laughs) capitalism and there'll just be a little rat on the beach with a mimosa and little cucumbers on my eyes (laughs) (laughs) it's art babe (laughs) i love that so much did you have anything to add to that nathan i really love the the concept of like providing dream space for artists Mm -hmm. and i don't know I don't think the the festival model, and oh, this might be controversial as someone who works for a, a festival, but I don't think the festival model is always the most um, useful mm-hmm. format to <gasps> to grow. <laughs> I mean, and it's great for presentation, right? Like the output of a festival is that mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah. In our case, it's a month long kind of excuse for artists to put on work but actually it's the stuff that happens around the festival that's the most interesting it's the conversations that lead up to the festival that are the most interesting the conversations that could happen after the festival when the work has been developed that could be the most interesting it's these kind of tiny nooks and crannies that and i think this is kind of part of that that querying right like in a way we're querying the festival by finding its holes that aren't typically used for making and making with them i really like where you're going with this yeah, no. No, I like it because it's a little bit sexy. No, I love it, Nathan. And I think <laughs> that that was one of my, I guess, deep desires. And I was really happy that I was able to get that over the line with mm. the, you know, first ever Takatapui artist residency mm. for, for Pride. And that there wasn't really any expectation of outcome. Like mm. if you if you make something cool if you don't cool maybe just have some space and time and resource to reflect and think and dream what does that look like how do we create more opportunities for that to happen because Mm -hmm. you're right julia once you're on that treadmill it's just go and then it's like oh 
are you but you've just made that what's the next thing and when's yeah. that happening and yeah. don't worry about having any space in between to live a life which yeah. helps inform your work yeah. because actually we just want you to spit something else else out it's not sustainable no and that's the gag of it is that all these conversations that we hear currently especially in our sector around sustainability and i'm like where what are you talking about and the lull of like putting it in one funding app and being like this is going to increase sustainability for me to make yet another work so it doesn't actually there's no structural change to increase sustainability for community or people en masse it's like I'm writing my little thing to make my little show that I'm too tired to make and putting sustainability all over it it's empty Yeah. so I feel like our industry has a long and proud history of finding buzzwords using them up and mm. emptying them completely oh, of meaning and God, I feel like yes. sustainability is apt that's the buzzword of the moment that is quickly becoming just it's nothing it's nothing because actually what sustainability yep. if you really want requires is real sustained structural deep structural change totally and that's tricky yeah it is and this is why I just I'm like where honestly I yep. keep arriving back at where if you can show me where the sustainable practice currently is, I will eat my hat. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is not <laughs> the, the truth anymore, but my practice was the most sustainable when I was on the benefit. Yeah. Which was, uh, you know, the polit- political landscape has changed. So I think it's a lot harder to get on a benefit now, but that was where I was the most sustained, held. Also, you could live on it. This was like 15 years ago. Well, she's old. Um, so you could sort of scrape by and li- a living in Auckland, and you can't do that anymore. But like that's where it was sustainable. Yeah, none of none of the other stuff has made it truly sustainable. No, I don't yeah. think so. I'm just angling to the UBI. Yeah, yeah. Imagine had to double oh, check imagine. those were the right <laughs> those were the right letters because sometimes I come An out and go, we just absolutely need a UTI. <laughs> <laughs> what is no, needed right now, no people, one, is a UTI. No one needs a UTI. Drink cranberry juice. Get a urinal in ya. <laughs> oh, and you should throw this conversation. Of course, I love it. <laughs> Here to oh, help. Oh god, that is so funny. Yeah, and I think just sort of to Nathan's festival thing. One thing I've been thinking about a lot, which might be also slightly inappropriate to say, I feel like the last few years we're really scared of things dying and ending. Yeah. So that we're also in this um, growth mindset of like the festival has 180 events this year, next year has 200, without actually going, do, do we as employees and artists, is any of this healthy, is the work valuable, is it good, are we happy? It's just this idea it has to keep going and get bigger. And I feel like over the COVID years there were so many points that you just like let it die. Let it's it actually die. okay mm-hmm. in the arts. And it's funny that we don't know that since we're we're all performance makers, of like let a thing be glorious and then let it go. Let it go. Just it can be incredible for a year, a month, a day, and then it can disappear and you don't know where the threads of that pop up somewhere else in the ecosystem. But I think this insistence on keeping things afloat. Sometimes I'm just let's kill it all and see what happens. I mean, this is the thing. Why? I always come back to that across so many different spaces I've been in. I'm like, but why? But why? Because if you can't, <laughs> if you can't answer that simple question around why am I doing this and what is the intention, then why? Like, why? Yeah. What is the purpose? Yeah. 
Just let it dry. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. That's a choice. Yeah. It's a choice some people should make. Sometimes that's a, Oh, absolutely. And sometimes that's the most creative thing you can do. Mm-hmm. I think in life or in art or in relationships or sometimes just let it go and walk away. Yeah, I agree. Any Anything to add to that, Nathan? Well, I think like the creative ecosystems, just like any other actually organic ecosystem, new things can't grow if you don't let things die or mm-hmm. if things don't die, new things can't grow. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like Julia says, we're so bad at letting things die that new things, we're actually, that means we're really bad at letting things grow. And I think like, that's just like the most sad thing. A lot of the time you see artists who cannot sustain their practices or enter their practices fully because there is unfortunately the sort of scarcity um, and hoarding model that's happening with certain arts practitioners and certain arts um, organizations that should be doing more. I mean, when we think of the concept of the kahikatea, right? Like mm-hmm. that says it all. It's a tree that supports other plants, and you just go, okay, where is that happening? In the in the same way, we're asking, where is sustainability actually being practiced? Where is the practice of artistic leadership actually? helping fold others into the mix mm. and I don't see it very often. Yeah I agree and I think there is something to be said about our current funding models because that as an example Nathan what you're speaking to it does actually work ironically enough that when you invest properly into organizations and you allow them the space to just do the thing that they're good at doing there are great outcomes from that so I think there's something to be said around our current funding models don't work and what does that look like if we were to unpack that and often I think and this is something I've been reflecting on a lot is I don't think CNZ are the problem I think they're a symptom to a much wider bigger problem agree and everything is so siloed that I'm like well you know we have the Ministry of Culture and Heritage why are they so siloed? Why are they not having more cross-pollination and working with the Ministry of Business and Education and Health and the Ministry of Pacific People and so on and so forth, where there's so many intersects where arts, culture and creativity are a vehicle for an abundant abundance of things for our community and the outcomes that arts, culture and creativity have for our communities. We know this as queer people. We have seen this through, you know, the AIDS epidemic, that the the driver for HIV awareness was through arts and culture and how we were able to permeate that those health messages out to our community through those mediums. Yeah. So it's, it's strange to me that there's such a siloed approach to how we fund something that is fundamentally about humanity anyway Mm. and the wellness of people and like what that looks like yeah shit yeah let's just do that well i was just thinking to myself are you going to get into politics no have you ever thought about that absolutely not okay i'd drop drop one too many c words and tell them they're all stupid like But this potty mouth in politics, no way. They'll be like, cancel her, put her in the rubbish bin. And we're like, okay, I'm, okay. Got, I'm done. Just zoomed out for a minute. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a No. Okay. You take that thought back. You put that back in your <laughs> okay. brain. Absolutely okay. not. Um, I think just picking up on that in terms of our ecosystem that we currently all move in, how how could we improve that? What does that look like for both of you when you think about the current ecosystem that we all sit in 
and you know it, there's there's kind of two two things happening I think currently where there's like some radical stuff that artists are kind of tinkering with and going why don't we just do this over here and they're demonstrating that and then there's the cultural long slow burn kind of mahi that is happening within places like Creative New Zealand and council and government and all that stuff but what does that look like to you as individuals and practitioners how can we what are some of the things you think could shift to make the ecosystem just a bit more functional I guess and less dysfunctional I mean, a big one for me, and this is maybe from a very like playwright-centric point of view initially, is that we don't really have a national theatre, and mm-hmm. we don't really have a platform where across Aotearoa people are engaged in what the kind of cultural moment is. Mm-hmm. There isn't sort of language there, and that's across more than just plays anyway. But I think of the fact that Pride gives us opportunity to be in- inherently or intrinsically connected to different um, pride organizations across the country. And that's something that we haven't quite utilized yet. And that is true across other organizations too. But I think there is something about pride that offers much more connection if we take advantage of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of being an artist in Aotearoa is that we don't really have a very big audience within a little bubble. But even within that little bubble, we haven't properly expanded it to unfold other cities and other communities and I think there's a long way to go in doing that but I feel like that is so possible Mm -hmm. thanks Nathan that's the the big one for me anyway yeah I mean I think I sort of said it before but um for me I mean I think for all humans your sort of rent or your housing your food your uh clothing, your heating, none of that should be as precarious for anyone as it is. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, uh, like a wanker, I spent some time in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they have like some really functional systems for artists where you, the government will guarantee you a wage. Mm-hmm. So, and I think in places that are comparatively not the similar size to Auckland, it's really reinvigorated the arts because people's creativity and people's um, ability to take risks and experiment isn't tied to their ability to put food on the table. Yeah. So it can create in really quite small spaces incredible audience engagement, like in places in Scandinavia and um, I was recently in Brussels, which um, there's this incredibly vibrant experimental performance scene because people can and do try stuff and that leaks out into a wider kind of European and then down to other parts of the world and ecosystem in which things are being challenged and queered and experimented on. So I would say an artist wage would make a huge difference. And I would, this is so utopian, it's never going to happen, but I would say just pay everyone to take a year off because I think people are tired in their bones and, and people are grieving in their bones in ways that are really real and... Mm-hmm. I'm, if I think about it too much, I get so sad about the opportunity we had for a minute there of really, it really felt like during that first lockdown, things were going to shift. Mm-hmm. And the speed with which we've just gone back to bullshit mm-hmm. of precarity and treating these like quote unquote essential workers still, you, st- you still can't get a living wage. You're an essential worker and everyone 
what stood and clapped or whatever, and then we can't even get it together to pay a living wage. I'm like the the disappointment and bitterness and sadness I feel at the potential to not realize that moment of change we had, I think as part of my general tiredness and and wear and tear. And I feel like for many reasons, many people right now just need um, at rest. And I think if I was queen of the arts, we'd all rest. Yeah, that's something I've definitely been reflecting on. And I read the most phenomenal book called, totally fudge this, Rest is Resistance. Rest as Resistance. Something to that effect. It was written by a woman who created the NAP ministry. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. And this idea of um, for black bodies, this idea that rest is an act of reparations too. And I think there's something to be said about that around productivity again. That Everything I know about rest I've learned from black women. Like black women are out there really... Doing, they're doing the Lord's work. They're doing the absolute Lord's work. And I think one of the things that I like to remind myself is like the concept of self-care, which now is like a mask and a fucking manicure or something, actually came out of a black women's revolutionary struggle. Like that shit is real and it's important and it's not separate to, you know, in a kind of Western colonial paradigm, we've separated rest into something that is not action and is not connected yeah. to progress mm-hmm. and I would like to challenge that and give us all a rest oh absolutely I'm like how can you run away from the potential um zombie apocalypse if you given it enough if you haven't had enough rest I think about that often <laughs> I really do, yeah, so do I. <laughs> when we lived in cross street I had a whole plan of like where mm-hmm. we're because there was only two points of access and who was going to be on the food committee and who was, Nisha was going to grow the vegetables, me and Lydia were going to go and like loot them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'll come into my own. You wait. Oh, I love that. Thanks. <laughs> um, just having a little look at some of my provocations. Yeah, just picking up on what you said earlier about being in Europe. I was um, <laughs> recently in Manchester um and kind of once again they've figured out that the way in which you regenerate a city which was you know has a very interesting history to it all in of itself is they understand the value of arts culture and creativity and how that is as a um as a vehicle as a spark can like regenerate a whole city and it's quite buzzing yeah like being there and kind of experiencing that and getting to speak to local artists and the kind of investment that is being made into the arts and how that permeates yeah and has just been beautiful beautiful it's, experience i mean this is obviously in a very different economic climate but all those cities that are now like the cool art cities like new york and detroit mm. and berlin that all happened because there was space and people could squat it and then artists move in and I mean there's sort of a gentrification conversation there too but there oh, is yeah. like um, something that artists can give to spaces that are unused and unloved and I lived just off Queen Street and it's, it is so frustrating I look at you know parts of downtown Auckland are really people are struggling down there and you see all these shop fronts and you're like give it to artists put a band rehearsal space there and then they'll go and buy the chips at the dairy next door. Like, it's 
it seems to me such a no-brainer, Wayne. Yeah, I mean, this is it. When we were um, helping to facilitate those conversations with with our artists and with our creative community across Tamaki, it's an it's a no-brainer that it's an economic conversation too, that it's not just a nice-to-have, like the things that we do as a sector, as a community, it's not nice-to-have, it's needed. Well, I think, what was the word you said before, we're, we're in a not a, there's not enough mindset, what did you call it? Deficit. Uh, deficit mindset. I think that exists across a whole lot of structures that then our response to it, particularly post-COVID, has become being really, really risk-averse. Yeah. And that's in terms of our programming and which kinds of art is getting supported and presented, but it's also in terms of how much funding and from who and where. And so I feel like that, that risk aversion is something that really could do with a bit of a firecracker up its butt to give some a bit more imagination into institutions and structures and funders to be like, you know, maybe you you high trust model and maybe you do lose a bit of money and artists go and buy a car, but so what? You'll probably get way more back in terms of generation of material and, and thought and art than you invest because artists always go above and beyond because we're all nerds. Absolutely. I think something I was reflecting on quite a bit whilst I was in Manchester and I wanted to ask you both about this and this, let's see how this question comes out, is, you know, for me as a mixed race Moana Oceania diaspora person on stolen land, what is my responsibility to Māori? And I think there being quite a deliberate strategy to create a takatāpui offering within the pride landscape is really interesting to me and beautiful and necessary and it's been great Nathan watching you outside of a February pride context help to birth an opportunity for our takatāpui artists with Hamiota Bailey in Matariki something quite beautiful recently and I was just wanting to ask you how that was how that and how how is it holding space and doing that and being able to activate that as um non-maori people moving through this space i think that made sense yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's actually it's so hard right because when you're when you're holding that space and when you're toiwi you have to reckon a lot with your own colonial guilt mm-hmm. and it's something that I was sort of like theoretically prepared for, but, and it's nothing that, you know, anyone else is doing. It's just stuff that I have not reconciled or haven't actually had to wrestle with on like mm-hmm. a visceral level. But once you're in that space, you really do like to really honor that space and to really like meet that space and meet Takatapui artists and, you know, to rise to understanding and actually engaging with Hamiyota's sort of like dreams and visions, you actually have to reckon with that. And that's something that's been really new to me. Yeah, because so much of my like artistic practice in the last um, say since like twenty nineteen in particular has been with sort of um, Pan Asian kind of sector and Tamaki Makoto and like really building that kind of clan of people who are just like really tight and really like there and really get each other. Whereas actually, when you enter a space as Tawiwi, you actually also have to reckon with the things you don't know, yeah, and, it, and the things that don't come easy. And that's been really challenging, but also I mean that in the best possible way, like challenge as growth and challenge as like um, muscle building, really, more than anything. But yeah, it's been quite, also quite emotional for me. Yeah. 
Um, but super stoked that we have a, I suppose, an organization that values um, placing Māori at the center mm-hmm. or at the, at the future of things. And I can really feel us being kind of at the forefront of that when it comes to arts organizations, doing it um, really organically and doing it quite um, thoughtfully. Yeah, I totally I hope so agree. Anyway. I, I think that's something I felt quite proud of leaving leaving Pride is knowing that that's a really intentional thing that as a as a festival as um, as community leaders that there's a real exerted effort to make that be a real priority yeah. and it not be lip service yeah. and it not be performative and not chucking and not be uh, periphery no, and I feel like mm-hmm. that's such a beautiful legacy and you're like relatively short time in that mm. role um, and it feels to me like yeah. the natural kind of uh, momentum of that offering that you and Hamiora started is really will I think very soon be the centre of will be I the, the kind so. of planet in <clears throat> which the other um, programs orbit around and it feels like to me like such a no-brainer of like when you think about locality look where you are like look, come on is this still a conversation we're having to have in 2023? I mean, it is. It is. And I know it is. But I think it's just recognising where you are and that locality is really important. Yeah. That you, all of us, if you're non-Māori, benefit from being on stolen land. What does that mean? How do you hold that? How do you shift it? What does it even look like? And I think I'm really excited to see how that the Takatapui offering within Pride continues to, yeah. I think eventually it will be the sun. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's that's the metaphor. Me and Hami had a nice chat yesterday of just like starting to loosely talk about next year, what he's going to do, and then we're like, oh, but that could go for 25. And honestly, it is, it is so exciting. I got so many feelings that I made about four different phone calls at once and then started crying. So he's really got the most oh. incredible vision for... Um, next year and into the future it's really deeply deeply exciting to be sort of being able to support and you know like and you will all of us who have had the opportunity through our creative endeavors to have a pathway to an international platform and stage know that when when you go overseas and this is the beautiful thing of being in manchester they're not asking about western art forms in new zealand they're going oh my god what do Māori makers yeah. make? And, oh, my God, haka. And do you do haka? I'm like, no, not me personally. Oh, I don't. But I know a lot of beautiful practitioners who do phenomenal kapaka at home. And that's that's what they're interested in. They're not interested in the other stuff. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's sort of a kind of an a adolescent phase that Pākehā yeah. New Zealand's just sort of, I hope, shedding of, like, that Shakespeare or Strindberg or Ibsen or whoever else of those dudes don't, that doesn't speak to me and that does not belong necessarily, not saying can't exist, but it doesn't, It's that's not our canon. No. And there are other canons that we could be paying attention to and there are canons that are being built. And to totally. me that's more exciting than a, um, Shakespeare but set in a different time period. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's so exciting to me personally. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of notion of us rebuilding a canon from a lost past or from a past that has been once sort of um, concealed is quite delicious. But also 
building a new queer canon that hasn't really had a chance to exist yet and have a chance to like breach the cultural consciousness is quite exciting. Like for, to imagine kids one day will kind of go to high school and learn the queer canon from Aotearoa is so exciting to me. And I think that's where I a lot of this work starts. I totally agree, Nathan. And I think those things aren't separate, right? Like being an indigenous person and queerness, they're inherently, they've always been there. There is no separation. So I think that's quite an exciting thought. Yeah. I think I sometimes think, God, I'm fucking full of metaphors today. It's like um, <laughs> it's like one jersey, and you can there are different threads you can pull, but actually the power that's being unspooled is it all comes from the same same jersey, right? Absolutely. Well, that's my last metaphor for the I day. I have oh, thank oh. you for all the metaphors. <laughs> You're I welcome. have one last question, and this is always a question that I end these podcasts on because I think. It is so important to think about the future and and have conversations be future focused and lift the gaze up and out instead of being stuck because it's really easy, um, I think, in our sector in the current way that we all operate to feel stuck. But there's so much opportunity for bigger, beautiful, better things, I think. So I would like to ask you both, what is your hope for the future of Pride, be that locally or globally, what does that look like for you both? I think a couple of things. I'm going to steal Nathan's thing because I loved it so much about little holes and cracks where we find each other because I think in my experience as an artist, like the work is sort of secondary to the the relationships are really mm-hmm. the material. Mm-hmm. And Nisha, who we all know, who I've collaborated with a lot, we used to say that the shows are just our love language. Like it's a way that we just, how we express how we love each other as we make another show, but the show is not the primary thing, it's mm-hmm. the result of. But also I'm really excited about, as opposed to a national theatre, things uh, across Pride and across the arts becoming increasingly decentered, mm-hmm. and that, that rather than being one centre, like each centre has an arts festival or a theatre, that um, the resources and the momentum gets decentered. So it's more each community, smaller communities being able to make work of themselves for each other. We, When me and Nisha again were making our festival Fola last year, we talked about the rise of the micro festivals because mm-hmm. it felt like between what Jara and Osh were doing with The Nest and Flying Fetu and us and Experimental Dance Week, I went, oh, isn't this a much more beautiful way to experience art that we all like, uh, n- oh my God, there's one more metaphor, like little um, nodes or little star clusters rather than one big thing that seeks to speak for any one experience because mm-hmm. that's not how I experience life and I think art is more interesting when it's um, specific to a person and not trying to speak for us all. Yeah, I agree. Yum. Mm. Good. My my teacher at drama school used to say universality through specificity. Yeah, which I think is a really nice thing to remind oneself of. Definitely. That's my hope for pride. Love it. Thank you. They were quite lost in that, Julia. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I was meant to speak as well, but I really <laughs> love that. I guess one of the maybe early ambitions or dreams was this concept of scale. But 
I wouldn't say I've moved away from that, but actually I think with the, the kind of thing of wishing for scale, actually what I'm really wishing for is that these brilliant independent artists actually have audiences. Mm-hmm. And I go, how do we scaffold and service artists to find audience? And I think mm-hmm. that's so important, right? Like mm-hmm. just like the, the fact that um, the work is secondary to, you know, the community that you're building, making it, the work is also secondary to the people you are engaging with and talking to and mm-hmm. speaking to mm-hmm. like it's that conversation you're having with the audience the right audience member right it's that one that one audience member who gets it rather than the 100 who don't and i think oh man when i think of queer work that really like manages to do that and has done that for me and that has been a real lifeline for me as like a, a human being you know we're talking about this thing of like the ministry of art and culture but and, and how actually beyond that it's not just an arts and culture issue. It's a advocacy for people's um, selfhood, actually, that we're talking about. And I think when we're talking about 2023, more than ever, we're talking about how art helps us form ideas of how people are and gives people, like, humanity mm-hmm. and helps us understand that they're not monsters, actually, in a year that our community is being demonized and being sort of constructed as this monster. How can art change that? And how can art subvert that? And how can art give people's space to feel human and full and messy and complex and transgressive and revolting and angelic and beautiful. So yeah, maybe that's uh, kind of getting away from the question a bit, but I think there is so much hope in art to save us and change our lives. And I think we can keep doing that rather than art being this like, oh, I can't believe I have to make art make this piece of art with no money and that being the central conversation mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i totally agree mm-hmm. nathan and i think in the words of the fabulous billy porter who's just incredible and i love him so much you know art does change hearts and minds and so i think it is so important that we continue to center that as well that it's an opportunity for people to arrive at other people that they might not never arrive at so i think there's something to really be said to that Oh, thanks, guys. I just want to really acknowledge you both, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I knew I would. This was actually me just being quite selfish. But anyway, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. I miss and you, Nathan. Truly big news to you, Alicia, because, like, I really am here because of you. And it's funny because our kind of um, Paka Papa also extends back to the fact that, you know, I stepped into the role at Basement last year as well. Uh, oh, yeah. And you've also done that role. So there's, like, this kind of many folds that we're um, sort of tracing and tracking here. That and we're stuck with each other. Quite I know. <laughs> my evil There's plan. still a big photo of you in my living room. I look at it every day. From that show we made that one time <laughs> where you're screaming. It is you and Tatum Waranata screaming. I love that I look so at much. it every day. Yes. <sighs> Thanks so much for listening to Creative Capital. Brought to you by Te Taumata Toya Ibe. You can learn more about our mahi at www.tetaumatatoyaiwi.org.nz. Please also get in touch with any feedback or ideas for the series too. Namahinoe.